We acknowledge the traditional landowners of this country. We pay our respects to elders past, present and emerging. We would particularly like to acknowledge the traditional landowners of the land on which we stand. I am on Wiradjuri land. Tam stands on the land of the Dharawal people and Laurie on the land of the Tarabal people. We express our great gratitude in sharing this land with you. Remember our disclaimer, materials and content in this podcast are intended as general information only and should not be substituted for medical advice, diagnosis or treatment. I love this moment. We'll we're like quiet. here. She I know. We're all yeah. Oh, she's in the car. <laughs> she's in the car. I'm multitasking. I am. I just went from one car to the other because my toddler is inside and he's not asleep yet. So if I get home, then he will go crazy. Oh, yeah. No, so you can't see me. Here I am. My husband's in there. Yeah. No, he can't see me. I got yeah, my so husband. The toddler's to not in there on his own. <laughs> he's in the letterbox. So. Thank you so much for taking time out of your extremely busy day. And in ca- it's hard sometimes when you see names and, and faces in case it's not on Skype, which is hard in the car. But I'm Lori. I'm Joe. Hi, Joe. I'm Tam. Nice to meet you, Tam. None of us are any elite athletes, but we see and we treat so many people. And we were just discussing before you came on how we weren't sure if, like, at growing up, women were never in the spotlight in sport to begin with. And then women who then were pregnant and became mothers, they just disappeared, right? You just kind of disappear. But as an athlete, we're like, I wonder if you growing up, you ever thought that that would be career ending or if it didn't even cross your mind and you're just like, well, I have babies and I go back to my sport afterwards. That's a good question. Uh, I had a number of people to look up to. Karen McCann was one woman that I really looked up to as an athlete and as a mother. And she, you know, was a great athlete post starting a family, Um, you know, while she had some of her most incredible races when um, after she had three kids. So that was one that I really, you know, took heart, I guess, from. And then Sonia O'Sullivan, um, she's an Irish distance runner, second in the Olympics, 5,000 metres of Sydney Olympics. So, yeah, I had a, I had a few. I feel like with the endurance sport, it's the kids that give you the mental grit, right, to just yeah. keep pushing, right? <laughs> <laughs> totally, yeah. Running a marathon, it's almost easier than raising kids. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I'm sure. We'll take your word for it. <laughs> yeah. I've only run once and not in, oh, my God, the times that you run in are just insane. I was like the last one I would think I was reading, which you probably remember all your times, um, was what was it, 2.30.51 at the Commonwealth Games? Yeah, 2.30.51. What is that per K? What is that per K? Ooh. Um, I think it's 3.30. Three? In the threes? 3.30. How is that even possible? <laughs> this introduction I have taken from little parts that I've read and it will never do it justice because you have such a cool history. Eloise Wellings is a dual Olympian, five times Commonwealth Games representative, finishing fourth this year in the women's marathon 
a humanitarian, public speaker, author, and a mum. I just read recently, too, you were the first Australian track and field athlete to compete at five Commonwealth Games, and this year's Calm Games were your first Australian team appearance since the birth of your second child in 2019, and your first as a marathoner after scaling up from kicking so much butt in the middle distance track events. So, oh my goodness, thank you so much for coming on and we were going to talk to you today about being an elite athlete, training, competing throughout your pregnancy, returning to sport after children. And as I mentioned, we all watched in absolute adoration as you, Jess Stenson, and Sinead Diver battled it out in Birmingham, which was not so long ago, finishing at 2.30.51. Um, and not just inspired by the athleticism, but as a pelvic health physio, we are very interested in female athletes and... We are all mothers. Um, we've spent a lot of time this year researching and thinking about how to support our elite athletes better through pregnancy and returning to elite sport postpartum. So I'd love to start by asking you how you trained through even not just one pregnancy, but two pregnancies. First of all, thanks for your work in this space <laughs> because it's so necessary and it's so nice to meet three women who are passionate about the pelvic health of, of female athletes and, and finding out how to um, go about, you know, having really strong pelvic floors after having kids and to, I guess be as healthy as possible as a female athlete. So yeah, thanks for your work in this space. It's, it's really important. And I know that I know I've spoken to Sinead and Jess about this podcast and they're like, great, this is awesome. <laughs> So yeah, uh, the first question. Yeah, how what did like I do how, for during my what did you do when you found out you were pregnant and you were going to train through your first pregnancy? Did you have to change mm. distance you were running? You know, I miss. I would assume, but maybe I shouldn't. Um, that you do any other activities like resistance training or mm -hmm. anything as part of training for running? How did that happen? Yeah. Like, how did any of that change when you were pregnant? When I fell pregnant with Indy, which was my first baby, um, I was pretty much resigned to the fact that obviously I wasn't going to be competing that whole time. Um, I wasn't sure how long I was, and with both pregnancies, I think I wasn't sure how long. I didn't put a, I guess, a goal on how long I'd like to be running for or whatever. I think um, what was important to me is that, is that um, I felt healthy and I felt good and I knew that if I felt good then my baby would be safe and with Indy I, I really just ran um, to how I felt and when I say that I just ran at a pace that was conversational and I'd just come from competing at the London Olympics my first Olympics so it was only two weeks after that that we fell pregnant which was really exciting but at the same time I was still very fit and so running was pretty easy for the first trimester until I basically detrained. And then, um, you know, the second and third trimester were, um, you know, things got a lot slower. I ran pretty much most of the way through the pregnancy. Um, my mom had four kids. She's a runner as well. And um, she was able to run through her four pregnancies. So I was able to kind of pick my mum's brains um, a little bit about how it would feel and you know what was normal and um, so that was really helpful as well that 
yeah, I just really took it kind of week to week and even, you know, towards the end, day to day. Um, I, I managed to continue um, resistance training for probably up until halfway, I guess. And then I don't really know why I stopped that. I just felt that I think I just felt that if I was getting out in the fresh air every day to jog, I was happy with that. I did a fair bit of um, cross training, especially with my second pregnancy with Sunny on the elliptical and low weight bearing. Um, I used the fit splint a lot, um, the pregnancy belt. That was really helpful in just helping me feel more supported when I was even walking towards the end. I was wearing that and it just helped my whole, took the pressure off my pelvic floor. Um, I also invested in a pair of um, maternity tights that went over your tummy it just felt just made everything feel a little bit more compact when I was exercising so we hear really differing um, pieces of advice so sometimes people will say in second trimester you should stop running and the advice is often very generalized and like you said coming from an elite athlete your volume's already really high so Mm -hmm. to drop things down for you for someone who's sedentary is actually still a really high amount of volume and impact Mm -hmm. Um, yeah. Did you did you go to like the day that you delivered or you said you no. kind of went until you felt comfortable? <laughs> yeah, so with Indy, I ran until I was 38 and a half weeks and I my waters broke on my due date. <laughs> nice. Um, and then uh, with Sunny, I ran up until I was probably 36 weeks. It was comfortable until all of a sudden it just wasn't and that was the same with Indy it was kind of you know from one day to the next the baby just changed position and it just wasn't comfortable anymore and then that was it like I didn't want to do it if I was going to be uncomfortable and but I guess with both of my pregnancies the first trimester looked a little bit like running between between 10 and 14 kilometers a day most days um at a conversational pace and then second trimester very similar probably dropped down to five days by then and added a cross training day third trimester was more like every second day um, of running maybe only sort of four to eight kilometers um, every second day and then the other days would be cross training um, for anywhere between 30 and 60 minutes on the elliptical Um, So I was trying to do something most days with my heart rate at around the same. I didn't always wear a heart rate monitor, but it's, it's sometimes a good, it can be a good gauge for your level of effort, but I mostly just went by feel to be honest. Yeah. Awesome that you're so intuitive Eloise, because I don't know that everyone is or that um, I suppose relaxed with it. Do you know what I mean? Like you're doing quite a bit there. So it's amazing Mm. that you could feel that it was fine. For me, it was just doing, like, as I said, like making sure that I was running at a pace that I knew that, you know, I could have the conversation at. So Mm. I wasn't out of breath. It was so far from what I was normally used to. Mm. And I did, I did um, speak to, especially in my second pregnancy with Sunny, I spoke to my obstetrician about how training should look and would look during that time. And um, I actually wanted, I actually talked to her about, you know, I asked her, should I, you know, should I stop running? Even though um, I'd run all the way with Indy, I was just a little bit more anxious. We'd had a couple of miscarriages in between. You know, she said to me, um, 
I've been doing this for 35 years and there is absolutely no research into um, or no evidence um, into exercise and miscarriage or, you know, anything to harm the baby um, with exercise. And, you know, if you stop running, you've been doing this for every, almost every day for the, you know, the best part of your life. It's almost worse if you stop doing that and your body will go, what the hell, what the heck is happening? It seems such a natural, normal thing for you to do to get up and go for a run every day if you feel like that's what you want to do. And so I just took that and went, well, I'm just going to, yeah, go day to day. And, um, again, it was just about, you know, doing the logical things, like not running in the middle of the day. It's like, you know, it was getting October. Uh, Sonny was born in November, so towards my, in my third trimester with him it was obviously getting pretty hot in October and just doing really normal things make sure I'm hydrating and, and yeah. eating enough calories to you know to make sure that I'm fueling myself as well as you know fueling the pregnancy and mm. um yeah so keeping my energy levels like really high you'll no, be no, pleased to know that the research has finally caught up with with um the clinical sort of anecdotal evidence of your obstetrician so we now know yeah. from Margie Davenport and lots of her colleagues that actually vigorous exercise is okay and yeah. um, like you say probably better than not mm. particularly when you've already been doing it for most of your life so yeah good and on I think you that that's a, thank you <laughs> I think that's the message you know that like there's there's a lot of I guess stigma around being pregnant there's a lot of opinions and I think I think trust yourself and also trust the people that you're working with. And I trusted my, my obstetrician, Marcella, you know, with my life and my baby's yeah, life. She's and, lovely. Um, yeah. And, and yeah, just, you know, I saw as well, like I, I've seen over the last couple of years, what other elite athlete, female elite athletes have been doing, you know, whilst they're pregnant and still being able to maintain workouts. For me, it wasn't about, trying to stay fit for racing it was really just about maintaining a like an even foundation level of fitness so that I could eventually come back to my career because I wasn't racing I didn't see the point to go and um, do track workouts and things like that but other people you know have a different journey and so um, and that's fine and it's good to see the research is catching up with that yeah it definitely is and um, kind of leads us into postpartum as well Eloise because I mean again many different opinions as to how we should come back to running postpartum um how did you find it what was your experience well I've had two very different experiences I had an emergency cesarean after 13 hours of labor and um really um I want to say traumatic as births go, but all births are probably a bit traumatic. <laughs> um, but it was it was quite a difficult birth and really um, quite sore for a number of months um, or a number of at least weeks and then it was a number of months before I felt ready to start running again. I actually did try and run um, after that six-week mark when Mm. we're told that it's okay to run and I actually wasn't Mm -hmm. I was just not ready and abdominal um, pain or just I just felt like um yeah so abdominal pain I felt real pressure 
um, yeah. in my pelvic floor and I just felt really loose <laughs> everywhere. And I just yeah. thought I'm going to need to do a whole lot of um, like gym work and uh, I just need I needed to kind of get back into the gym and get some foundational strength first. Um, linked up with my now strength and conditioning coach, Jock Campbell, and he wrote a, a program for me and um, worked with him. His wife is an athlete too, and she she had been through this process before. And, yeah, so that was that was really handy to kind of build some strength in the gym first. With Sunny, I had a scheduled cesarean. I did go into labour first, which was oh, that's cool. <laughs> um, surprising. But the day, so the day before I was scheduled, so it was a very much more relaxed experience, and I hadn't been through that whole intense labour process only to have yeah. then a cesarean. So it was very different in terms of how um, much damage I guess was done internally. Um, and yeah, I felt good to start running actually after three weeks. Started with a three times one minute jogs with a one minute walk in between. And then I just built up from there. I think I had the next day where I didn't run. And then the next day I did like five times a minute. And then the next day I did eight times, like the next time I ran, I did eight times a minute. So I was doing it every second day for a couple of weeks and then, and then just built up. I was with Sunny, I was chasing um, the Olympic carrot of trying to qualify for the Tokyo Olympics. So I think if I didn't have that carrot dangling, I'm not sure I would have started that early. But I felt I actually yeah. felt okay physically. I probably just would have waited a little longer because, you know, what other opportunity do you get to rest than when you have a newborn? Um, yeah, so, but I don't, there's no regrets. We kind of decided, I decided that that's what I wanted to do and that's what I wanted to shoot for. And it definitely did um, give me something to aim for on the way back and, um, you know, what, what better thing to aim for than running for your country at the Olympics? I didn't end up qualifying and making the time, but it's what um, sort of catapulted my career into um, marathon running. So, as I said, like the the two, I guess, comebacks from both pregnancies look different. And, and I think that's one of the things I think um, I would tell other women is that probably just don't expect everything to look the same each time if you're having multiple children or don't expect <laughs> to look the same as anyone else's story because it just looks it just doesn't ever and that's okay but it's still I still think we can definitely come up with more guidelines general guidelines around um what to do and how yeah, to yeah um, yeah how to be at your best um as quickly as possible so if you aren't a patient of mine and you haven't gone back and listened to the episode on the Empowered Motherhood program, listen up. Actually, everyone listen up because this is amazing. The Empowered Motherhood program is an incredible online program and mobile app that combines physio-led exercise and expert education for every stage of pregnancy, birth, and the postnatal journey. It's created by the Australian Physiotherapy Association's titled Women's Health Physiotherapist, Liz Evans, and Pregnancy and Postnatal Exercise Specialist and former elite netball athlete, Kimmy Smith. It has week-by-week programs which start from five weeks of pregnancy all the way through to the first year postpartum. Alongside Kimmy and Liz, the EMP includes expert interviews with an obstetrician, psychologist, dietitian, midwife, 
and more. The pregnancy program has been created with up-to-date medical pregnancy guidelines and includes a combination of strength, Pilates, cardio, and bar classes, but I know some people call them barre, but with a French background, seriously, it's bar. Um, Yoga, guided meditation, a program for women experiencing pelvic girdle pain, and a complete birth preparation series, which includes physio-led birth prep classes, as well as expert interviews and education. The postnatal program is designed to be started from birth and their birth recovery program includes both vaginal and C-section week-by-week recovery programs. It includes functional progressive exercises to help women return to exercise safely and confidently. It has programs for pelvic organ prolapse, pelvic floor injuries such as incontinence and obstetric injuries such as anal sphincter tearing, as well as a complete eight-week return to running program. They offer a free trial for maternal healthcare providers, so you can look around the app and you can also have the option to list your clinic on the Empowered Motherhood program, find a physio page, so you can receive referrals from their members. So head to empoweredmother.com.au or look for the link on the show notes. Yeah, it's fun because um, your mention of guidelines, <laughs> you know, in terms of the guidelines that we currently have, it is to wait until 12 weeks to run. Mm-hmm. I think, forgive me if I'm wrong, Joe, despite anything, uh, despite how anything. you feel. Yeah, that's right. It is just measures. aimed at, yeah, general population. General population, absolutely. Oh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's, we don't necessarily agree with these guidelines at all because mm-hmm. we absolutely would assess everyone's body. And I've had quite a few amazing runners come through and, you know, pre-six weeks they are ready to run and they have been running and they absolutely should be running. So I love that you went based off how you felt as well. That's so cool. Like you felt with the first, with um, Indy, that you weren't quite there and you needed to increase your strength, but you felt with the second, you know, minus yeah. the carrot, of course, that you were going to be okay. So, yeah. yeah, it comes into it a lot. <laughs> yeah, it does. And I think I think that's so important is just to, um, you can compare yourself to other stories as much as you like or, you know, like look at the guidelines and go, oh, my gosh, 12 weeks seems such a long time. But you know, again, I, I asked Marcella even before I had Sunny, I said, you know, do you think that it's like my pelvic health will be like it was last time? She said it wouldn't surprise me if you if you healed faster. And I'm like, okay. I still was pretty careful on just not gripping tight on any sort of scenario. <laughs> um, and it's important to be flexible because even if I had have run that first time after Sunny and gone for that first run and felt fine when I was running, I remember walking home thinking, okay, I got the run done, but how am I going to feel tomorrow? Like to, mm-hmm. the next day is actually important as well in how I've recovered from doing that and, you know, the forces. And so I think just constantly, I guess, not gripping onto any sort of scenario, being flexible enough to change a plan and do some cross training or do something else that you feel that makes you feel good. And for, for me, that's, Running makes me feel good, but if I can't do it, I'll find something else to, you know, like I'll, you know, do some other cross training so that I feel like I'm working towards my goal of whatever that is. What's most important is that you are feeling comfortable to 
to run and um, feeling comfortable with with whatever you're doing and recovering well. Did you, um, I know you did end up having cesarean sections, but I'm just interested, did you actually see a pelvic health physio for an assessment of your pelvic floor at any point in your pregnancies or in or postpartum? Yeah, I did. Um, I saw a local um, physiotherapist and with Sunny, my pelvic floor was pretty strong and good, I guess. Like that was the diagnosis when I was, you know, right before I was about to give birth. And then I saw her again. I actually got a stress reaction in the neck of my femur about uh, Sunny was about eight months old. I went back to see her again and, yeah, we talked about, you know, that I'd lost a little bit of pelvic floor strength and then to go into doing, you know, returning to or just being a bit more intentional about the exercises and um, core strength. And, you know, it's funny because those exercises, they you, you lie on the floor and you don't look like you're doing anything. <laughs> you don't, yes. It's not... It's not um, super obvious that you're actually doing anything, but they're so incredibly effective. Um, yes. So for an athlete or for any other ambitious person, it's like you're not going to get a sweat up by doing <laughs> pelvic floor exercises. That properly. you are not. It's not like doing six-minute abs. She kind of encouraged me to cut out the six-minute abs and just start consciously, <laughs> intentionally um kind of doing pelvic floor yeah no matter where I was you know standing at the kitchen bench chopping vegetables like whatever like wherever I was because then it did actually make a difference to um to how I was running and also how I felt and my the efficiency of my running because my hips were rocking a fair bit because I had a weak pelvic floor yeah but it wasn't actually until eight months later um when I got that injury that I kind of started really doubling down on those things so that's sort of a um, segue into our next question about stress fractures or stress reactions mm-hmm. leading into stress fractures because from what we've read, you've certainly had your fair share of that. The neck of femur at eight months postpartum has probably got a little bit of a different physiology to it than some of your others um, mm-hmm. because obviously we're now talking, I assume, were you still breastfeeding at that point or had you breastfed for a yeah. couple of months? Yeah. yeah, yeah, I was still breastfeeding and I mean, I, I'm a big believer in that there's not one real cause in a stress fracture. Like I've, you can kind of theorise as much as you like, but I think I think there's always a, a couple of things. Combination, um, right. Yeah, there's always a couple of things happening and definitely during that time breastfeeding was, um, you know, was definitely a player in that injury. And um, But, yeah, the, the other stress fractures that I had, one of the biggest causes was, you know, I just wasn't, just wasn't fueling enough. I um, suffered from an eating disorder that started when I was around 13. Um, And so from the age of 13 to 28 years old, I had 11 stress fractures. Um, And then I didn't have one for almost 12 years until after Sunny, (laughs) until I got that um, neck of femur one. When I was younger and, you know, in, I guess, my developing athlete years, it was very easy to get caught up in being thinner is better and, like, you're going to run faster and you can mm-hmm. for a short time, um, but your body just uh, basically breaks down after a certain mm-hmm. amount of months of 
not fueling and not nourishing your body enough, especially your bones. And that's what happened mm. to me. Even though I recovered from the eating disorder by the time I was 19, I was still another, what was that? It was probably another eight or nine years um, until I fully recovered, I guess, until my bone density was at a level that was adequate enough to handle the training as for an elite athlete. Um, and my bone density by the time I was 29 was the highest that it's ever been, interestingly. Yeah, that um, is interesting. Different to what I was told when I was 16 is that, you know, you, your bone density starts to drop when you're in your early 20s and it'll decline. But um, mine actually kept kept going up. Um, yeah, so that was – and then we did a number of things, like we did resistance training and obviously mm. calcium supplement, supplements and vitamin D and – um, I was eating, I changed my diet um, completely, but all of that had to, could only happen with when I changed um, what was happening in my mental game and mm. overcoming the eating disorder. And, you know, I, I had psychologists, um, a psychologist to, to work through with that and, um, you know, family. And it was a really difficult process, to be honest. Yeah, something that I, I learned a lot from and definitely love, have loved and privileged to mentor some young women, mm. um, sports women in particular, that go through not necessarily eating disorders, but disordered eating. Um, mm. Just, you know. That's um, a better term for it. <laughs> yeah. Disordered eating. Well, yeah, and I think it's certainly something that I always need to be wary of now of mm. like certain um, triggers or, you know, habit or things that pop up and, you know, but because I'm aware of those things now and I've learned the cognitive skills to overcome those thoughts and the, the direction that those thoughts take me, I think that that's been really powerful in, in helping me, um, you know, heal completely and it was quite a journey and I don't know, I wish someone at th- when I was 13 years old had been, um, you know, told me that, told me all the things that I that I know today, but mm. I, I guess it's just part of my story now. So, mm. uh, but, yeah, Gee. if I can say someone else from making the same mistakes or going down that same road in a heartbeat. Have you seen the um, AIS modules? Female Athlete the- Performance Initiative by the AIS? No, I haven't. The trying to do little modules to inform on disordered eating and reds and all this type of stuff for athletes so it's pretty cool and normal menstrual cycles etc what happens if you don't have them yeah um yeah we'll send you the link after because it's it's and i think that there's so much more of that available now um than there was when I was, you know, when I was 13 years old, which was 20, almost 27 years ago. Um, but yeah, I think, um, and it's important. It's important that um, that girls are empowered with this information and resourced and mentored and stood alongside and also coaches. I'm very passionate about coaches being uh, educated in how to deal and recognise when mm. an athlete is struggling with this because it's a really mm. lonely place for an athlete and often it takes either a major injury or a major diagnosis from a health professional to go uh, to admit that you actually have a problem, which was the case for me. 
a lot of coaches just don't know how to approach it. And I totally understand that because they haven't, you know, they haven't grown up in this generation or, you know, it might be a male coach where they don't have the same pressures um, or they haven't gone through the same body image pressures that a young female athlete has gone through. So they wouldn't have a clue what's going on in her brain. <laughs> but mm. let's give them a clue, you know. Mm. Um, let's be really open about the pressures and the things that young female athletes face so that we can help to support them when things like this come up and um, and not even allow it to happen in the first place, you know. Mm. Yeah, Keep that's right. I mean, inclusive. Thank you for sharing that story. I mean, it's so powerful, and so we're grateful because we didn't even think of sort of of, of that being a, mm. your reality. So um, mm. we're grateful for the share. I'm interested in two things. One, how prevalent is it in track and field and marathon running? How prevalent is disordered eating? I mean, obviously there's the studies, but I suppose just from your experience. Mm, I think it's really prevalent. I think that there would you would be hard-pressed to find an athlete who has been in the sport for longer than 10 years that hasn't at some stage um, wrestled with, I need to be, I need to look like this. Um, I need to look in a certain way and how do I do this? I need to control this and use food as a control mechanism um, mm. as well. And it's not just about like wanting to be thinner to, to run faster. It, it's, it's about a control. It's about, you know, control. And, you know, even during COVID, the, the, the incidence of eating disorders uh, like amongst general populations skyrocketed because people felt out of control. And the only thing that mm. they can control was, what they ate and it's you know very similar for athletes who are under pressure it's it, it gets I know that you know speaking to, from uh, to other athletes who have journeyed through this it gets worse around major championships or mm. coming into like a really high pressure race because you're just trying to control something um, so right. I, I think it's really important mental skills coaches and psychologists um, and mentors around that are solely there that have no other agenda other than the athlete's mm. well-being is so crucial. You know, chaplains on the teams, just being there for the sole purpose of the athlete's well-being. I can't stress enough from being in the sport for, you know, over 30 years how important that has been for me and, and you know, looking at other athletes' journeys as well. A lot of the sports positions now, well, certainly the ones that are working with female athletes, are wanting to get a handle on disordered eating much, much sooner, like you were saying, and trying to figure out what are the little signs because, well, A, for their well-being, but also um, because without that energy and they end up with an energy-deficient system and they end up amenorrheic, you know, without a period, and then, yes, before you know it, their bone health is suffering. So, um it is sort of does lead to some significant issues in their body that is highly preventable if we're a little bit yeah. more switched on. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, our period is such a, we're so lucky as women, I think. Mm. <laughs> um, hear me out. To get a period no. every month. <laughs> we're with you. No, we agree. <laughs> we agree. <laughs> it is so, such a like marker of good health. 
Like it is a such a crucial sign. moment, especially for a, a female athlete. Like I think, you know, obviously there's there's men, there's male athletes that suffer from disordered eating as well and red S and um, they, they don't have that same monthly marker of like, hang on a sec, there's something wrong here, you know. Um, but mm. we have that, you know, we have that like red flag, so to speak, um, <laughs> where, you know, it's it, it hasn't come. I'm not pregnant and I'm so you, if it hasn't come and you're not pregnant you're and you're a female athlete training hard you're likely just not fueling enough like yeah. it's as mm. simple as that that's right um, and yeah I think it's you know for me um I you know I think it's such a great marker of you know that I'm I'm fueling well and you know, I celebrated every time because I'm like, yes, you know, <laughs> nailed this. Um, and yeah. When did you get your period? Like, I actually didn't you? get it until I was 21. Oh um, my gosh. Yeah. So no I. No wonder was, you celebrate. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. So I was 21. I had, you know, eating disorder from 13 to 19. I was put on the pill at, um, 16 so uh and then was on that for about four years um and then um just decided to go off it because I just didn't like the way that it I felt and um Mm -hmm. I just didn't feel myself when I was on the pill and then I thought I'm gonna try this because I'm I feel better I'm eating better I'm training well and I felt healthy I was at a really healthy um, stage and so I just went off it to see if I'll get my period and it took about six months um, but it came it came back and then it's been normal ever since well done amazing <laughs> thank you <laughs> do you want to ask one of the next questions Eloise on? yeah I know sorry I'll shut up I just listened to your podcast um Eloise it's awesome oh thank you it's so good. Thanks. I feel like yeah. you're a mental coach there too, right? So like yeah, a, the person that you host it with is a mental yeah, he's coach. a mental skills coach. So that's yeah, um, my friend Roy Darkins. He's a yeah, he's a mental skills coach. He's my mental skills coach and a um, a coach to to you know high performers around the world. And his main um, research is into performance and well being. And so he loves this space. Um, and he yeah he's a psychology practitioner and um yeah been really great to work with him on not only the stuff that uh that I needed to work on um going into marathons and my mental game um but also um we do a lot of speaking corporately and we've developed a presentation called unlock your olympian mindset um, which we take into schools and, and corporates. And, yeah, so that's been really fun. We've been working together for about five years and um, we've got the podcast, and, which we're about to rebrand, but if you want to go and look at it, it's called What's Right Within. And, we already uh, have. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, well, I was just going to ask you about the foundation um, because I listed off all these things that you have done at the very beginning and I missed a lot of things. Um, but you also have the Love Mercy Foundation, which we would love to hear so much more about. So can you tell us about that? The Love Mercy Foundation started in 2009 
and it was after I had a chance meeting with um, Julius H. John. He's a runner as well. He's an Olympian, two-time Olympian, and he's from Uganda. And um, Julius and I met in America uh, when we were both training there and became fast friends. And he told me about his vision to go back to his um, community in northern Uganda and help people um, get back on their feet after 25 years of civil war. And he wanted to run some community development projects um, and, yeah, basically help people to um, find a way to overcome poverty. And so we, yeah, we started the Love Mercy Foundation. And I guess um, our job here is is mainly the fundraising. We do, um, we work alongside our local team um, in the operations side as well, but our main, our main work is in the fundraising and um, raising the resources so that we can um, run the projects over there. And, you know, um, our three main projects are drilling wells for clean water, um, the Christina Health Clinic, and also our Sense for Seeds program. So it's basically um, giving access to healthcare, um, income generation and clean water to to tens of thousands of, of northern Ugandan people. And, um, yeah, our team, our local team on the ground in Uganda are incredible. They do the most important work. Um, and, yeah, it's honestly a privilege to, to be able to do what we do and to use running as a platform and, a, I guess, a vehicle to um, be able to, I guess, uh, bring light to um, the situation over there and um, and the opportunity as well that people have with just even a simple seed loan through our Sense for Seeds program, um, you know, can create income, um, create food security for an entire family. $30 um, for a 30 kilogram seed loan can create food security for an entire family for, for a whole year and um, can enable a woman to pay for her own children's school fees. Um, so things like that. So yeah, it's been a real honor. We celebrated um, 12, oh, almost, we're about to celebrate 12 years um, of Love Messy. And um, yeah, it's been been an honor and a journey. We John, Julius is actually coming out to Australia in a couple of weeks, um, which will be fun. We're gonna go and speak to some of our major donors and. Um, go for a couple of runs and um, get our Love Mercy community together. And, uh, yeah, it's been a couple of years because of COVID. He hasn't been able to come out and we haven't been able to go to Uganda, but um, we, we're kicking, all, kicking that all off again. Incredible, really incredible. We yeah. will put the link, of course, in for people Absolutely. to donate um, once you. they've listened to you. Um, Amazing. Because, yeah, what a heartwarming purpose uh, to have something that we'd love to be part of. Thanks so much. Thanks so much for coming on, Eloise. Yeah. That was Do you amazing. Guys- yeah, again, thank you so much for your time. No worries. And I love thanks, your podcast. I'm gonna, oh, thanks. I'm, I'm going I'm I'm to listen, listen to that, that on the yeah. way home. Yeah, Very do the stress young. one, Laurie, the most recent one. That was my yeah, favourite. Okay. Stress is good. Mm, mm. I think okay, intentional good. rest, we didn't say this, but I think you're, you um, said intentional rest is not lazy. Mm. I think that Can you we- need to, like, like, make that a thing. 
can we yeah. premise that in the podcast show notes to say and listen to this one in particular you know oh, yeah. It, yeah yeah we can do that yeah yeah yeah, yeah right. we'll do that we'll put really it all good. out there perfect yeah. well thank you so much and sorry about the noise it's way it's so loud in here no worries all right thanks all right see you see later ya. have a great day see ya. bye, bye.